Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sip on the go with a Starbucks iced shaken espresso. Our signature roast, shaken with ice, then finished with a splash of milk. Customize it to match your style on the Starbucks app. Make today a good day. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits. Then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm connected remotely to my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Martin Collier. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Miris and Bowie. Hello, Barney. Also on our screens today is our very special guest, Tony Russell. Hi, Tony. Hello, everyone. Hi, Tony. <laughs> Hi. Later, we'll be talking about Gillian Welsh and the Everly Brothers and Bonnie Whaler and other things. But right now, it's just wonderful to welcome one of the great writers on classic blues and country music and the author of several superb books including rural rhythm published this month by oxford university press tony we've had your work on rocks back pages for some years now we're very grateful for that tell us how you first came to write about american roots music in the early 70s or maybe even earlier than that how did you stumble on this incredible music in the first place Okay, it's the early to mid 60s. I'm in my mid teens and I'm listening, as we did, to popular music. My head, you know, always wedged against a tinny speaker to pick up Radio Luxembourg and <laughs> it's borne in on me. I find all this stuff fascinating. The whole world of, of, of pop music, I mean, not the, the, the artists, the the record labels, the the stuff in small italics underneath the song, which it took me a long time to realize was giving you the name of the songwriter. <laughs> All these little details about records, the objects themselves fascinated me. And I bought the pop press. And so I'm reading about the stuff, I'm listening to it. And I come to realize through both of these media that what I'm really interested in is what, what gets through to me most most uh, penetratingly is black american music of the kind that was then generally called r&b and so i'm talking about things like the early tamla motown artists and Stax figures those you could hear occasionally on british radio you very seldom heard the people that i then became particularly interested in which was the chicago blues musicians like muddy waters and howling wolf and jimmy reed they were almost inaccessible. And so that was part of the charm, really. You read about them in the pop papers. Well, at least you read about them in Record Mirror. New Record Mirror was much the most avant-garde of these papers <laughs> in those days for me. Norman Joplin. Norman Joplin. <clears throat> I, 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 I once, years later, when he was acting as a publicist for some record company, and he called me as a publicist for another, and he introduced himself, and I was incoherent with fan worship. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because I said, you're, you're responsible for my being sitting here. You know, you turn me on to all these people. I realize now, and I'm sure Norman would agree, if you look back at them, the, the pieces are nothing special. He used to write, you know, there was a series called The Great Unknowns, yes. which gives you some notion of how, how these people were regarded. <laughs> these were people who were making a perfectly good living in Chicago and elsewhere, <laughs> but they were great unknowns to the new record mirror. You know, it might be a piece on Howling Wolf, say, and it would be a couple of paragraphs cobbled from album sleeve notes and a list of singles currently available that have been culled from some American catalogue. But there's this guy called Howling Wolf, and he comes from Mississippi, and he's been in Memphis and Chicago, and he's done songs called Killing Floor and Do the Do and <laughs> Smokestack Lightning. What is this stuff? I mean, this is so absolutely not Dickie Valentine and Lita Rosa. <laughs> this is music. I, I can't even get a, a sense of what it must sound like because nobody is ever playing it. So all I can do is read about it and kind of slather slightly at the mouth. <laughs> but then fortunately, for once the record industry came to my aid and they started putting out some of these this hardline R&B stuff in, in Britain. There was uh, Pie with the international R&B series. With Guy Stevens. Guy Stevens was another, yes, with Sue Records. And he also wrote for Record Mirror. Exactly. Wrote about Sue Records products for Record yes. Mirror. <laughs> he was another mentor in the early days. Anyway, so uh, Pie shows up with these red and yellow labelled Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley mm. and Howling Wolf and Sonny Boy Williamson. EMI retaliates by slipping some of the product from the Chicago label VJ by Jimmy Reed and John Lee Hooker onto the stateside label. And so this stuff is beginning to come out. And then, greatly daring, I would order an album of an American import label of old blues recordings by Charlie Patton and Sun House and Skip James. And that was another you know, mind-blowing moment, hearing these, these lost voices from 30 or 40 years beforehand. So there's all this huge learning curve for me not a learning curve a learning mountain as every month i'm getting a copy of blues <laughs> unlimited or r&b monthly and finding out about these people who as i say very often i hadn't i knew about them before i knew what they sounded like but that was intriguing and interesting and a great encouragement to to further research it's a common plaint these days but when you can get anything at the touch of a keyboard stroke the fun goes out of it and the sense of achievement and discovery. But anyway, that's uh, I was listening to this stuff and becoming for several years a complete blues obsessive. And then uh, at university I met somebody who listened to blues but also had records of American old-time country music, and especially the famous Harry Smith anthology. And that, for me, was a, a genuine Damascene moment, you know, I'm... I've been used to listening to old crackly old blues records. Now here's crackly old hillbilly records alongside them on the same compilation. That was one of the great points about the Harry Smith compilation. There were no barriers. And it was as if I no longer had to think of music in terms of two distinct communities, black music over here and white music over here. I could now feel that I was walking down any southern town, Main Street, and hearing black music from one side and white music on the other maybe, but it was mingling and merging in the air around me, and I was walking through this wonderful miasma of southern vernacular music, and that for me was uh, you know, a moment of excitement and discovery that I hope I have never lost the spirit of. Going to build me log cabin 
on a mountain so high, so I can. I'm wondering, we'll obviously talk about rural rhythms greater length at the moment, but I'm about halfway through it. And one thing that strikes me is that the, the, the recording crew who have come down from New York or Chicago, wherever, down to whichever southern town it is, would be recording the, uh, one of the blues men in the morning and one of the old time or proto country acts in the afternoon of the same day. That actually, what you're talking about, the black music and the white music, was being recorded by the same people at the same time frequently. Yes, and in some on some occasions we we do have accounts that suggest that there was a certain amount of you know, interracial jamming outside while people were waiting to be recorded, <laughs> Amazing. or or of kind of you know listening in to see what the other the other lot are doing, yeah. and, and maybe stealing a little of it. There are many things that one wishes one could uh, have a time machine for, but to be in you know Atlanta in 1929 listening to Gid Tanner and the Skillet Lickers perform and then give way to Barbecue Bob. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, really, that would have been something. It is fascinating that because, I mean, you know, old-time country music, I mean, old-time music has that in its name, old-time, and it's very much a time capsule reading reading your book you're going back mostly two-thirds of the records you say are from a seven-year period something 1922 to 1929 and that's not necessarily true of the genres blues and jazz that continued and carried on and perhaps what seems from the outside looking in a more direct way although of course country then came out of old-time music but I mean how do you view old time country music compared to the blues you're talking about how they're kind of mingling in the air as you listen to them but how how do you make that comparison how do you feel one compared to the other well it's perfectly true that old time music was marketed as as old time from the start by by the the record companies in their press releases the whole idea was that by buying an old time a, a record of guitar and the skillet lickers say or uncle dave macon or charlie pool by doing that you uh, essentially connecting with the music of your parents or even grandparents. Mm. This is not, on the whole, what you get in the contemporary advertising for blues. Blues does not look back. Blues is a very unnostalgic music. So you would think that that was a huge difference between the two, and it, it is true that many old-time country songs are inconceivable as sung by black people, at any rate by black people who were actually listening to and caring about the words because they don't express things that black people were interested mm. in expressing. And I make this point about the, the very first record I write about in the book, mm. Little Old Log Cabin in the Lane. It's all very well for fiddling John Carson and his audience to be nostalgic about Little Old Log Cabin in the Lane. <laughs> but, you know, the black people of the time would have been only too glad to have got out of the Little Old Log Cabin in the Lane, even if it was to exchange it, you know, for a sharecropper's shack down some other lane. But blues <laughs> is about moving on, whereas hillbilly music is very often about staying in place. And so that, yes, that is an important distinction. And yet, all the time you sense, especially with the more creative of the recorded musicians, this desire to not be stereotyped as, as, as recreators of good old days. They're looking to progress the music and their own careers with it, no doubt. But a lot of these people were not content to be put in the enclosure marked old time and they burst out of it as soon as they could that's interesting and because because one of the reviews of or an article a contemporary article of the time talking about it you quote as saying the death of floyd collins wreck of the shenandoah at my mother's grave and other such songs which have had fairly widespread popularity may mark the initial move in the passing of jazz which of course 
retrospectively is a very amusing thought that somehow these old time records might mark the passing of jazz, which of course then went on to become the predominant form of popular music in the 30s and 40s and continues to be a pursued form, performed form of music now. So it's, it's, it's funny, but it makes sense what you say that some people did see it as a boat that they could take onwards rather than just looking backwards. And two, it's true that old-timey music was enlisted in the war against mm. progress, essentially, which right. jazz, yep. jazz represented. It represented progress. It represented the... Uh, the urban. possibly dangerous, well, urbanization, the possibly risky presence of the a more emancipated African American population, mm. loose morals. It, it represents all kinds of things, and constantly we're having these old hillbilly barn dance tunes being held up as as representative of yeah. the true spirit sort of, weapon, of America. A weapon in the culture war, absolutely. As against this suspicious, rather black, possibly even Jewish music, which is jazz. Tell <laughs> <laughs> me, how much... I mean, I get the impression that the Great Depression sort of stopped both rural blues and rural white music in its tracks as a, as a recording form. Is there any truth in that? that uh... no, well, it, uh, yes. I mean, it's a simple economic fact that it did. I mean, that by about 1932, 33, 34, almost no recording compared with the amount done in previous years mm. was being done anymore. Of course, it's always a mistake to assume that people that we know on records only made their living by making records. Yeah. If they were musicians, they might have had day jobs as musicians, and more likely they didn't, and they just, they, but you know, they didn't stop playing. Mm. What's interesting is that you do get this kind of extended hiccup, and then after two or three years of the worst of the depression, the music business grinds back into business again with the cheap labels like Bluebird and Decker coming in at half the price of earlier records and bringing with them a whole raft of new artists. And the music doesn't immediately change, but it starts to be aware of everything else around it in a way that earlier musicians weren't always. And so you hear the rhythm, the rural rhythm, becoming urbanized. It becomes more of an urban rhythm and music gets faster. It gets more demonstrative, more showy. And then you end up with bluegrass, which is a kind of old-timey super music, so to speak. Yes. You know, it's a super head <laughs> and, music. And, and also you, in the book you write about bands who were using ragtime and they became sort of proto-Western swing bands to some extent, the, the Texan music. Western swing musicians were the great, probably the first generation of people that really listened hard to records for their inspiration because mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. were stuck in Texas and Oklahoma surrounded by people that wanted to hear fiddle band music for dances, but they were men in their teens and 20s who wanted to play well they wanted to play music like the music that they were listening to in the in the record stores of Dallas and Houston and Fort Worth which was black and white jazz and some black blues and they were excited and inspired by this music as i don't i don't think you can find any similar example anywhere else of people who so clearly just set themselves a project we want to play jazz essentially jazz and blues but we want to do it with hillbilly instruments so to speak in a hillbilly setting so to speak and so you come up with this one of the great one of the first great fusion musics which is western swing which is western and swing mm -hmm. and blues and everything
I mean, it's interesting, the chapter on Jimmy Rogers, you described that as being genuinely new insofar as that his vocal, his verbal concerns, his musical concerns were closely cribbed to some extent from black blues that he, he had obviously listened to all his life. But there's a sort of straight line through from Jimmy Rogers to Hank Williams to Elvis Presley of this notion of white musicians in the South being very aware and appreciative of black music. Yes, that's true. And that Rogers, Hank Williams line, including people like Lefty Frizzell and yeah. all sorts of, sorts of other people, essentially is what's behind Merle Haggard and uh, Willie Nelson. That represents one of the two, that, that's one leg of the, of the, so to speak, of the great dichotomy in, in country music, which is on the one hand, you have that tradition. On the other hand, you have the family music tradition of the Carter family, which descends through other many other family groups to bluegrass, which is essentially based on that aspect of country yeah. music. And so it's very interesting because it stands for two entirely different characteristics. The family group, it's the... I think I once described this. You you imagine listening to the Carter family of a group of people standing soberly dressed, standing around a little portable organ or something like that in a in a parlor, and the light is filtering <laughs> through the curtains on this scene of domestic quiet and and serenity. Whereas Jimmy Rogers is the man who says, "Anywhere I hang my hat is home, sweet home to me." It's the music of the the rounder, the the atomized 20th century human being yeah. on the road you can't pin me down it's an entirely other tradition and it's wonderful country music i think has been sustained for generations now by the tension between these these two kinds which split essentially at that famous bristol tennessee recording session in 1927 when both jimmy rogers and the carter family were discovered and made their first recordings Amazing. and you looking with hindsight yes. you can see that essentially just creates the bifurcation of country music right there. It's fantastic. T for Texas, T for Tennessee. T for Texas, T for Tennessee. T for Thelma, that gal that made a wreck out of me. Am I right in thinking that, that your book ends on number 78 of your 78 records? Um, yes, it was, with, a, it was a, cunning, a cunning... <laughs> yes. Actually, we saw I, what you did there, Tony. Yes. Well, I originally was cribbing even more even more blatantly from Neil McGregor. I was going to have the history of old-time country music in 100 records, but it was too big a book for the publisher. <laughs> so I thought, what's the next number down from 100? Which that has resonance. Has, has re resonance, exactly, yes. So, yes, I'm sorry. Anyway, Martin, you were saying. No, 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 it's just interesting that, so that's the point where Bob Wills comes into the picture. And Yes, it seemed like a good place to end yeah. because I, I, it wasn't until I came to write that last paragraph of the book, really, that I realised in something like 16 and a half years, country music has gone from fiddling John Carson, scratching out a tune solo with, with the just a fiddle to the massed orchestra of western jazz musicians that bob wills is at the head yeah. of and everything else has moved a pace along with it everything movies books everything about american life is racing at a similar tempo and this is uh, it's it's hard to imagine bob wills and fiddling john carson existing in the same time frame and, yes, you know they, exactly. they both lived at the same time and yet the music has made such advances but you know the same is true of jazz and the same is true of blues 
It's just the country music has got such a reputation for staying the same that I thought a, a corrective <laughs> yeah. uh, draft um, should be administered here. Actually, on the subject of it staying the same, I mean, the very the, the, the term old time or old timey music, which was partly a marketing mechanism, Indeed. but didn't it point to the fact that quite a few of those songs may have been in the repertoire of rural white musicians going right back 50 plus years, maybe back to the middle of the 19th century? Oh, indeed. Yes. I mean, that, that was always held to be one of the great virtues of it. And this is the early press observations of these artists when they started performing in places where press, where journalists would actually go, mm -hmm. uh, was that, good Lord, there's these people living down in Virginia and North Carolina and so forth who are like uh, sort of lost Shakespearean era Americans. <laughs> um, it, uh, and this was nourished by, by, by Cecil Sharp having come, you know, a decade or two beforehand, song collecting in the mountains and saying very much the same thing himself, which was culturally and linguistically true. But I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, I've imagined that a lot of people valued the age of the songs. A lot of the people who actually owned the songs valued the fact that they came from generations back and yep. it's very often part of the performance that you say this is an old song you, you will almost very very often find musicians telling you how old they think a song is very often you know erring by centuries but it's important <laughs> that you give the song credibility and status by doing that but again for a, a lot of country musicians you know they were impatient with that sort of thing uh, they wanted to move on to the next thing Tony, I wanted to read something from one of the three pieces that are going to feature on the homepage because it speaks to the fact that you, not in, not uniquely, but almost uniquely, write about old blues and old country records in ways that very few other writers have done. It's from, you wrote these two tremendous pieces in 2005, one about Uncle Dave Macon, who you've mentioned already, and one about Charlie Poole, who you also mentioned. They're sort of reviews of these two albums that came out in that year, compilations. And so you write, when I first encountered Charlie Poole, I knew hardly anything about old time music. I was a blues fan and my ears were tuned to the resonances of the slide guitar to men like Sonhouse and Elmore James. I wasn't about to be seduced by some white guy with a banjo, but once I'd heard that crackly, cackly voice spinning me a line, I was hooked, lined and sinkered. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's great. Because it is, the, I mean, you know, it's such a cliche, isn't it? But I mean, it, it, when you listen to some of the tracks that you write about in rural music, I mean, it has the same sort of keening edge to it that great old blues records do. You know, when you listen to somebody like, I don't know, Frank Hutchison, it's not so, the experience isn't wildly different from listening to Robert Johnson. No, exactly. And that, that was the, that was the, the one. I thought important truth that I've been trying to you know, write about, that I've been inspired by, that I've been trying to hammer into the heads of people who didn't want to hear it sometimes uh, for you know all my sort of writing life is that uh, forget about you know, categories and racial divisions and so forth. There are some people who just do not fit the molds that you're using to, to try and fit them into. And there are some kinds of music that are mixed and multifarious and you know, get over yourselves that's how it is well your and very first book was was blacks whites and blues published in 1970 and you look far too young to have uh, published a <laughs> book you. that long ago but that was an extended 
argument for, for what I was just saying. I, mean, I just wanted to make, make this point. I mean, it's not a huge discovery. Other people had made it before. John Cohen had written a very good article in Sing Out some years earlier about the black-white folk music interchange. I mean, I wasn't onto some new discovery here, but the people I knew who were interested in blues were reluctant to hear that there was virtue in contemporary white music. I mean, contemporary with the recordings we were listening to, not with the us ourselves and as far as i knew any country music fans they had no interest in blues either and i just wanted to kind of open their ears to the thought that maybe you know if you like these guys these other guys just over here are actually doing something quite similar or interestingly not quite the same but you know there are connections Mm -hmm. and associations and don't you think it's interesting and especially when you reflect on what kind of sometimes unimaginable social interactions might actually have have made this possible. The circumstances in which a Jimmy Rogers might actually have picked up songs as some black contemporaries of his said he did from them, I you know I can't imagine what sort of 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 a meeting that was. And I'm completely intrigued by the thought of how you negotiated this in the 1920s or 30s. Fantastically tricky cross-racial movement to, to go and listen to the music of people that you that you don't associate mm-hmm. with in a way you were an early algorithm you, <laughs> you are an algorithm, you are an algorithm. I've, I've not been called that before <laughs> <laughs> thank but you it, I think. interestingly um you know if you think of someone like Char- in in charlie rich's background or in jerry Lee lewis's elvis's yes. there's often a black figure Almost invariably. You see, yeah. that's another... We're, we're, yes. going to talk, we're going to be talking about the Everly Brothers briefly in a moment, or quite soon, um, in this podcast. And they famously were taught guitar by a black guy, local black guy. Mm. All the, that, that's where they learnt their music from. So there's this one man who sat them down and showed them the chords and showed them how to do stuff. It's something which has never really gone away. Well, I suspect you get less of it today than you did back then. Yes. Well, yes. Um Innocence is a very difficult difficult word to use in this context, yeah. but there was a certain innocence around then that made some of these encounters and influences feasible and unself-conscious yeah. in a way that they would not be today. Hmm. One, of the, one of the tricky elements of that dynamic, I think, though, is that, I mean, when you think we've been talking about how some of the, the, the songs and sounds and experiences might not have been that different in the sense that, there's this poor white working class group of people making one type of music. And there's a kind of similarity in that, but there's also, there's a social element to which those people are being essentially told to hate, put down, disparage, lynch the other group of people making that kind of music. There has to be a tension there, surely that, that there was still a hierarchy that was being imposed on a group of people there and it's sort of odd to think about them as as although they are contemporaneous and although they have shared elements i just find it difficult to to think about those kinds of songs i think you're thinking about knowing it that slightly too hard i mean i think you've got two separate things you have the massive racist structures of the south particularly mm. unequivocally there's absolutely no doubt about that which doesn't preclude individual experiences. Yeah. Sure. No, no. No, this is true. And I, I, I wish I could tell you how many white musicians I've met who have expressed great 
and warm, perceptive feelings about black music and sometimes specific black musicians have acknowledged that it played an important, sometimes a formative part in their own music making. And once or twice I said, when they said, oh, there was this guy that used to play around the corner and we would go and listen to to him. And I said, you know, did you ever have him around the house? And there was a, a long pause and I would be asked, why on earth would I do a thing like that? And so, I mean, these are commonplace experiences. Anybody that's spending time talking to people in the South will will be able to duplicate them. But yes, it was possible. This is one of the the most insidious uh, aspects of racism. It is possible to have, as Marx says, individual admiration and collective scorn. Mm. And they live together in the same person. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I found it really interesting. I mean, recently having watched Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is a new film about Ma Rainey Mm. set in 1927 in Chicago, just because it's at the same time. And that's a very, very powerful film, I think. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it is a very difficult topic to untangle in in all of this. Yes, and it it does tackle that issue of, of, of racism in the music business more explicitly than you know, most uh, musical yeah. biopics, so to speak, have done in the past. All the boys in the neighborhood They say your black bottoms are really good Come on and show me your black bottoms I want to learn like that I did want to just mention the third piece that we're going to run, which is this Excellent piece you wrote about B.B. King for Cream magazine, not the American Cream, but British Cream with an A in 1972, which is, I think it's titled something like uh, Will Success Spoil... Yes, that's right. Not, Will Success Spoil B.B. King. Yes. Ross, yeah, Will, Will Success Spoil B.B. King. It's I think just one, of those, thoughtful piece one about, of those questions expecting the answer no, as they used to say in the Latin uh, grammars. <laughs> yes. But, I mean, you did write, you were one of those bylines that when I was sort of starting to read things like Let It Rock in the 70s and having read, you know, Charlie Get It, Sound of the City and so forth, you know, you were one of the people who was writing authoritatively and and, and interestingly about bb king and co and i just wondered how you remember that 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 time and how whether you felt part of a kind of small group of writers who were writing about roots music in that era so far as writing about blues and and yes i mean cream was an interesting magazine because it gathered an extraordinary uh cast of writers simon frith dave lang charles shaw murray i mean all sorts of people got their start or got a a boot up the ladder through that magazine, even though it only lasted about two and a half years, I think. Yes, I mean, well, as with any group of music writers, you know, there was rivalry and backbiting and, you know, scorn behind the hand and all that stuff. I do hope But a certain amount of comedy as well, I think. But there, there weren't a lot of people that were just interested in blues, like me, well, I wasn't just interested in blues, but you know that was what I was just interested in writing about in the context of a rock magazine. But you did—you never wrote about Barclay James Harvest. Let's just let's just say that, <laughs> state that for the record. And there was a kind of purism about your approach. No, actually, that's not entirely true because one of the things that I think—I don't know if it was Bob Houston as the editor of Cream or Charlie Gillett as the reviews editor. One of the things that uh, whoever it was did was uh, occasionally give records to people that weren't the obvious reviewers for them. And I remember in one quite long review, I covered both Carol King's Tapestry and Joni Mitchell's Blue. 
and several other. So, I mean, I did step out of my ground, as you might say, uh, <laughs> from time to time, partly because, you know, if you wanted to make any kind of a scrape, any kind of a living yeah, as a music writer back then, you know, you had to be more versatile than just writing song, articles about B.B. King. And and it was, you know, it, one felt that one was kind of exercising one's, one's journalistic muscles anyway, uh, writing about stuff that didn't fall neatly into the 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 the, the in-tray marked you know this stuff already but what i think exceptional about the bb king piece is how clear-eyed you are it feels very contemporary very, and very current the things that you're talking about in the bb king piece the race makeup of his audience the the way previous careers have gone in the blues and mm. and how you kind of work the white fan black singer angle is incredibly well balanced and well, I'm, I'm well glad, thought out. I'm glad if that comes comes through. I think it's not so much down to the writers, down to the subject. B.B. Uh, King was just exceptional in that he he was somebody of whom you could ask questions like like that. I mean, who'd thought about things like that himself? A lot of you know, a lot of the blues singers that I'd met were were not people who thought long and hard about what they were doing mm-hmm. and how how to cope with different audiences. I don't mean they were completely without any any notion of of, of, of the fact that, you know, they were it was different to play at a play at the Royal Albert Hall in a folk blues festival from playing in a Chicago club. But BB had been doing so much traveling in so many places for so long that he was a very sophisticated and aware person and so it was possible to ask questions that ranged a little further perhaps oh, than the questions one one mm. asked about uh, blues artists because he was so much larger in a sense than they were but it's very interesting your piece where you kind of you, you make the reference to does he occupy the same place as armstrong and the kind of edging towards a kind of uncle tom kind of thing you're, and you're very interesting about that I thought that was... Uh... That was always a danger that, you know, the white society generally has room for one black superstar in music. <laughs> and for years it was Louis. And then as he got uh, a little tainted by, well, you know, handkerchief and hello, Dolly kind of yeah. persona. Then, and then Ray uh, Charles had been... And Ray Charles, likewise. But then when, I think it was partly when Playboy started to pick up on B.B. King and and he started appearing in full-colour advertisements in... American magazines. That's the point at which he is clearly, you know, the the Louis Louis Armstrong de nos jours. Yeah. I don't know who's taken his place. It's interesting. People ask sometimes, you know, who's the greatest living blues man, which isn't quite the same question. It's probably now, I suppose, Buddy Guy, but he doesn't have that no. reach no. Into, no. into white musical appreciation. Robert Cray, but not a, not no. a big enough audience. No. But, but, um, but then it's also because the blues is so distant now. I mean, B.B. King was still having hits. The Thriller's Gone was a huge yes. hit. Mm. You yes, know, yes. So he was having popular hits. He wasn't just an old guy. You know, um, and Bill Graham was booking him into the Fillmore's yeah. and all that sort of stuff was going on. So, so you know, we weren't looking at B.B. as something from the past, I don't think. No. And, and he and neither importantly was he. I mean, yeah. Buddy, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells could have been bigger even than they were, but they seemed content to just go on doing roughly the same sort of thing that they always did. Whereas BB, either through his own ambition or possibly at some managerial suggestion from time to time, had a very open and uh, capacious attitude towards his own future. He would try any number of things. Yeah. And not just, you know, to, to, to stay on top, but mm. um, 
because I think he he liked challenging himself or being challenged. Mm. And that was that's that's you know quite rare amongst blues musicians, I think. With your blessing, Tony, I'd like to move the discussion on to two artists who, in a sense, kind of followed in the wake of old-time country music. Mark's already mentioned the Everly Brothers, but I'd like to just talk briefly about Gillian Welch, who has a new album out. In fact, it's the first album, I think, attributed to Gillian Welch and David Rawlings. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I know Martin and I think Mark are both fans. I mean, just for the record, what's your take on someone like Gillian Welch, who's clearly steeped in all the music we've been talking about? Oh, well, I absolutely approve of her, not that it matters. <laughs> and I think David Rawlings is one of the most exquisite accompanists mm-hmm. and harmony singers yes. in Americana music, whatever you want to call it. No, I, I'm, I, I have, you know, nothing but admiration for Gillian Well, that's Welsh. good to know, because she, they, she, they need to pass the Tony Russell test. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I Martin, you, I think you were the first person who mentioned Gillian Welch to me. In fact, I was listening Gosh. back to your audio interview I did with Gillian and David when that first album came out and I found myself I hear myself saying a friend of mine in London saw you at the Purcell room I think that was you did you yes, see them I at did. the Purcell room so y- you had told me how brilliant she was I really think you think with the first I mean what was you when did you hear revival yeah. when it no, first I heard it came out Mark up? told me about it oh, yeah. Mark, right. <laughs> well I went to see her very first London show which is a record oh company junket in, yes. I think Soho House or one of those Soho, Soho clubs Soho I mean, House I, so, no, no it's one of one of the the, big, the fancy Soho Babington House pri- <laughs> private private clubs it's one of yeah. the private right, clubs really there. okay and our friend Tom Fenner microdisons drummer took me along because he was then just starting his career as a as a, a, a T-boy at BBC Radio and I got a freebie. I'd never heard of these people. Went up these stairs and after, you know, a couple of drinks and there, just a room full of music business people and there's a little stage and her and David went up on the stage and started doing their stuff and I was just flabbergasted. Mm. You know, I, it was like, whoa, this is good. They were handing out the CDs before it had been released. They were handing the CDs out at the door. So I kind of grabbed one, went home and played it and just, just completely fell in love with it. Mm. Probably babbled to poor old Martin about it. You were on the phone to I, Martin within I minutes. I went to the personal room where I saw these two people who looked just like Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. And they were fantastic. I, 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 interesting. I've listened to some of the, the recent stuff and I don't know whether it's it, they're just slightly repeating themselves now. It's um, not as good, is it? Well, it's not. As it's good. just not as fresh. Or mm. and I wonder how people. I, I suppose this is a general question: how people's careers move. You know, without being a changeling, or you know, if you're if you're working in a certain area that is a relatively narrow area, then either like BB King, you do country albums, you do you work with the Crusaders, you do a bit of jazzier stuff. I feel slightly that they're in a kind of uh, a rut yes i mean it's challenging with a kind i mean with a kind of americana that is somehow backward looking where do you take it's that? old timing it, 
It's old time. It's yeah. old time, isn't it? I mean, that doesn't my... stop me appreciating how amazing a guitar player yeah. David no, Moore is. No, no, what, no, no, of course. I mean, one of the things that made me slightly fed up with him, actually, fairly rapidly, was was a song on the very first album called "Flat Black Ford," which involved a sort of fairly grungy electric guitar part and things mm. like that, and. I like the tension between them using sort of a more modern sonic palette and the old-timey sort of acoustic guitar and lap steel and so on and so forth. And that seemed to drop out of their repertoire. They didn't pursue that. Mm. Well, I think T-Bone Burnett um, actively encouraged them to go for a little bit more variety on that first yes. record. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I like David Rawlings' drumming, actually. He's, he's, he's like the rich well, manual yeah, of a, you know... Sure. He's, a, he's a very good electric guitar player as well, yes. you know. Yeah. Um, maybe they need to do a full band record, you know, that would be there. Well, they did do the, yeah, Come and Soul Journey's got some kind got of some, bandish yes. stuff. I listened, I mean, I went for a walk before we started recording and I and I played a couple of tracks from Revival. One More Dollar, I mean, yeah. is that not just one of those perfect things ever recorded by anybody? <laughs> it's just immaculate. Mm. And and then the, the track that's closest to the old-time sound that we've been talking about, I think it's probably By the Mark, is so traditional. It could almost have been recorded in sort of 1927. It's yeah. fantastic. I love them. We're, we're running a Mark Cooper piece, which is, which is really, really good, in which um, Gillian, she's... A similar epiphany to yours, Tony, when you when you first heard Charlie Poole, and she claimed that she 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 was scrubbing her bathroom floor when a friend put on a Stanley Brothers album, and it was like a light bulb going off in my head. So yeah. she's probably always, in some Proustian way, always associating cleaning her bathroom with with bluegrass music. But she says something interesting at the end, and they both said this, and I think they they even made one of them said it to me, which is. They talk. They think of their music as, as as art. Really, it's an art form. You know, they're not. She says, We're not throwbacks. She says to Mark Cooper, the vocabulary stays within the tradition, but this is art. We're not throwbacks, and we're not just being literal. You don't have to believe in heaven or to be a farmer to be moved by this sound. And I think that's really good because they have had a lot of flack for being like middle class music graduates. And at the end of the day, I don't give a shit where they went to school or where or where they grew up. Their music, particularly the first, I would say the first, first two albums, it just speaks to me emotionally. Mm. It just yeah. absolutely gets me. And, um, yeah, love them. I think it's it's a phrase I use in a slightly different context in my my new book Rural Rhythm, yeah. is that imaginatively true. It's not that the thing is mm -hmm. exactly what you might, mm -hmm. at a first glance, take it to be, or what it appears to be imitating. It's, in a sense, false. If if that's the, the what how you're approaching it, you know, it's it's not the real thing, but it's imaginatively the real thing, and that's and so and that that elides yeah. the barrier between the real and the and the feigned. Also, they have a new album called "All the Good Times Are Past Gone." I think is just out uh, tomorrow. But why don't we talk about another act that 
clearly came out of this tradition. If we think of close harmony, a high lonesome close harmony singing as being absolutely kind of endemic to old time country music. I mean, there are many who would argue, I'd probably agree with them that the that Don and Phil Everly were the greatest harmony singers ever. And so Mark, would you tell us a little bit about the Everly? Yes. Phil, yeah, it's Phil Everly, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, John Tobler in 1983, the less interesting Everly brother, Phil um, and which he talks about. <laughs> Ouch! Yeah, he, he talks. He talks about his his, his solo album he just done in London, produced by Stuart Coleman, which included players like our friend and one of our writers, Pete Wingfield, who yes. produced produced some tracks for Martin and I back in the day. Unfortunately, also Mark Knopfler. There's, there's a fly in every ointment, but he does talk about. We'll, we'll listen to the clip. They're finally, after 10 years of barely talking to one another, there's talk of an Everly Brothers reunion. So let's have a listen to this first clip. How did the, you, you mesh together again? Well, we haven't quite meshed in that sense that I haven't seen Donald. I've only talked to Don on the phone, you know, several times. And it's just, it's got its own, um, uh, Don and I's, it's really a, uh, what you're seeing is sort of a public view of two brothers, and uh, and with anyone with any brothers or sisters, they everybody knows everybody. Your brother uh, knows you better than anybody in the world, whether you've seen him or not, you know. And uh, as it, um, it's got to have a flow of its own. And uh, but I think the basic important thing is that we both uh, wish to um, settle that up. I think people would be very keen and very happy as. And I think um, it would be very important for us personally. I don't want to uh, end my life on uh, negative terms with my brother. We used to have good times together But now I feel them slip away <laughs> well, that didn't work. Interesting enough, he's talking about what, how they're going to put the band together because at that stage, Don had a band, Phil had a band. Now, in Don's band was Albert Lee, and Phil's band was Pete Wingfield, at least certainly recording-wise. And what they did was they put them together. And, and Pete uh, invited me along to the Albert Hall to see one of their Albert Hall shows. It was a good show, great playing. You know, Albert Lee's a fantastic guitar player, and so on. Pete's very funny, he said, Separate planes, separate hotel rooms, separate cars, separate dressing rooms. They would not address a single word to one another off stage, and they hated those guys. And what was absolutely brilliant was one of those BBC series like um, Rock and Roll USA, multi one of those multi part sort of. Don's interviewed in it, and he says, "Well, difference between Phil and I. Phil's right wing." I'm for the worker. I, I, I'm a socialist. You know, it's extraordinary. You know, they have, they have this massive political schism. He says, you know, I'm for the working man, for the union. You know, and it was just great, <laughs> great. Which of course made me love Don Everly all the more. You know. Anyway, so you know, he goes on about that sort of. Tobler asks him about the failure of the last handful of Everly's albums. So let's have a listen to that clip. The the decline of the Everly's. Were you conscious that the Everly Brothers records towards the end of, uh, you know, the late 60s and early 70s were getting less interesting to the to the public? Well, oh, of course, you know, uh, we were 
aware, but being in that sort of, being as we were, looking back on it, you wind up in a matter of, it was getting more divisive. We had separate managers towards the end. We had separate, a lot of separate things, and there was too many elements involved. And this is um, either a process I think we're, we're um, able to handle a little better now, but then it was, it was really a, div a divisive kind of circumstances going on, and I think that contributed a lot. Um, like Pass the Chicken and Listen album, um, the selection of materials, it wasn't as jointly decided on. It was more like, okay, rather than yes, you know? <laughs> and I think that uh, is, uh, you know, it's like anything. It, it, you can't do anything without your full attention and expect it to be uh, of the same kind of uh, quality. Bye-bye, love. Bye-bye, sweet caress. Hello. I still think Pass the Chicken and Listen is a great album title. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. <laughs> so, so there we have it. We'll, we'll, we'll play a clip at the end of the podcast. Of, he talks about his two favourite Everly Brothers songs, which will not surprise any of you when you okay, listen well, to it. Leave the audience uh, in suspense. Leave the audience in suspense. <laughs> Stay tuned, folks. <laughs> so Tony, I mean, Everly Brothers fan, I'm, I have to assume. I wasn't at the time particularly, and I become I, I admire them in a way for the the music that they based themselves on, which was pre predominantly the Leuven Brothers. Yeah, and I think you know you might get into some interesting fist fights in parts of the South if you advance your Everly Brothers, the best <laughs> harmony act of all time. Of course, in, in a bar room full of Leuvenites. I've in never, a, I've never like floated that theory below the <laughs> Mason Dixon line. Um, like a lot of things about this music, sometimes it's the stuff around the actual music itself which is, in a way, even more interesting. And that's kind of how I feel about the Everleys. I mean, their, their father, Ike Everly, and his interaction with other guitarists in that style, and especially the black musician that Mark mentioned, Arnold Schultz, I think is who he meant. That, that's, a, that's a, again, there's a, a fascinating social situation of black-white interchange, which I think actually did have people all sitting in the same room admiring each other and playing for each other, something that wouldn't have been possible a generation earlier. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, so that's the Everlies, and I think it's time now for a very sort of, well, quite an abrupt change of tack. We're saying goodbye to two major musical figures this week, and one of them is Bunny Whaler, one of the three original whalers who, who passed away earlier in the week. So we're running a couple of pieces about Bunny. Inevitably, a great piece by Vivian Goldman when the first solo album, Black Heart Man, comes out. And we're also running a piece from Vibe 1995 about what happened to the Whalers catalogue after Marley's death and the complete chaos of all oh, that. God, but yeah. Mark, just, I, mean, I just want to ask you whether you remember Black Heart Man coming out and, you know, what what that record means to you and what Bunny Whaler means to you, as opposed to, say, Bob Marley and the Whalers? Well, I mean, I suppose that's slightly problematic because by the time he started releasing his own stuff and Black Heart Man in particular, 
that was an area of reggae I was moving away from. I was getting more and more into dub, the much more instrumental sort of side side of. Stuff. I always loved his voice. Richard Williams in his his blog his, post, the, yeah, yeah, exactly, pointed out a wonderful song where he sing, takes the lead and in the Whalers in the sixties, absolutely kind of channeling Curtis Mayfield and it, it, beautifully. He had a lovely voice. By all counts, a really really lovely man as well, which you couldn't necessarily say about his colleague Peter Tosh. I remember there was a very good documentary about West Indian cricket, and he features quite heavily sort of singing the praises of Michael Holding and so on and so forth. But was I fanatical about his solo output? Not really. I didn't really chase after it that much, to be honest. I do think Black Heart Man is a pretty great mm, record. Cool. You know, I mean, I revisited it this week, and it's very slow. It's interestingly very, it very slow, isn't it? We also added, I haven't put this on the homepage, but Rob Partridge's Melody Maker review of that album when it came out, which is very, very positive. Yeah. But Bunny says some interesting things to Vivian in, in this piece, and he talks about what the Black Heart Man means and just how he, as a young man, grew up thinking that Rastafarians were would somehow quite sort of threatening and dangerous and you needed to be be quite wary of them and then gradually you begin to realize that that their mode of life perhaps makes more sense than than the way life is kind of steering you in in the 70s and uh, it's it's a really it's a really good piece actually and yeah love bunny whaler love the early whalers stuff and the first two albums on on i mean interestingly uh, somewhere, in, maybe in Larry Jaffe's piece from from Vibe, Chris Blackwell said at the, at the time that Black Heart Man was the best album to come out of Jamaica. Yeah, Vivian Goldman's piece. It's Vivian Goldman's. Yeah, I found yeah. that I found that really interesting mm. as a thing to, to yeah. say. And Vivian Goldman says he, he was right at the time, you know. And I think that's that's fascinating. I think, as you say, the sound of his voice is just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. We're also saying goodbye to Chris Barber, which ties in with some of the things we started out with, Tony. I mean, you can't have, I mean, this, this guy is a, is a, is a massive figure in the story of how blues and rhythm and blues took root here. I mean, Tony, would you care to just give us some context on, on Chris Barber in terms of your fandom? Yes. I didn't know it. I didn't really fully take take this on board at the time. I think a lot of us didn't because Chris, having done what he did, was then off doing other things. But um, in the late 50s and early 60s, he single-handedly really got American blues artists over to to Britain. Famously, Muddy Waters in 1958, I think James Cotton. um, Yeah. Uh, very Sonny and Brownie, of course, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And by the time I was interested, which was you know half a dozen years later, this sort of thing was more commonplace. And and you know it was who's coming this year? Oh, Sonny and Brownie. Oh, yeah. Right. Sure. <laughs> You're getting was, a bit blasé. <laughs> yes. But, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Chris yeah. was was operating in a a pre blues era in a sense. I mean, this is before blues fanzines, before there were, you know, blues series on record labels. He was one of a small band of uh, probably originally record collectors. George Melly has some fine anecdotes about Chris Barber as a meticulous record collector with his 78s all, you know, yes. neatly lined up on shelves. And yeah. that's how 
he would have learned about about blues. I, I think well, I have to ask Martin about about Chris Barber. Absolutely, his uncle was in a band with Chris Barber. Well, yes, but in fact, interestingly, I found a cassette of my my dad used to do record recitals because pre the radio playing any of this stuff, he would he would go to jazz clubs in places like Dorset and and talk people through records. And one of them, it was a really it was a great tape, and, and it ends with Rabbit. Brown's James Alley Blues, which I knew from the the anthology. But funny to think that Bill was playing these records in 1950s Dorset to people <laughs> who would come out to listen to records. Yeah, yes. But Bill, and, yes, well, Bill and Chris put together Ken's band for when Ken came back from his New Orleans adventure from jail, yes. was deported on the Queen Mary, sent home. Yes, and and of course that led on to Lonnie uh, and Alexis Corner being part of the band. But Chris was um, Chris was a mover, you know. He had great ears, loved New Orleans. I loved the fact that he continued his love with post jazz New Orleans music. Yeah. You know, he, he mm. toured with Dr. John a lot. He had a mm. very close relationship with him. Lovely guy. In fact, once I said, once I kind of was talking to Chris, and I so, sort of apologised for my dad. Because at one point, because <laughs> well, at one point, Bill, the band that Chris had put together, had my old friend Ron Bowden on drums, and and Bill decided that they should fire the rhythm section because they were too modern, and so Chris went off with the rhythm section. They talked, and they came back and fired Ken, you know. So, <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm, I think you know, it was, it, uh, I'd like to apologise for for Bill doing that. He said, oh, you know, we were all so young and stupid. Yes. He said. I don't know why we we all felt so so you know passionately about all this, but of course that was what made them great. They were totally what passionate. young people do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I won very brief Chris Barber thing. So I saw, went to the Capital Jazz Festival in 1981. It was outside Alexandra Palace, and yeah, it, was, it was Muddy Waters was closing the Saturday night, and it was terrible at first. Bob Margolin's guitar player was bitching at the monitor mixer guy, and nothing was happening. Muddy was stuck in his stool; he wasn't doing anything. Suddenly, it clicked, and Muddy got off his stool and started doing that little chicken dance that he used to do, and and then Chris Barber came out and blew trombone on Manish Boy, and it was just electrifying. It was oh, it was a fantastic show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're running two pieces. Uh, one is with the aforementioned Max Jones from 1965, which is just Chris talking. But there's a piece that the late John Pigeon wrote specifically for us in 2009, which is really a, a fantastic piece on rereading it. I've forgotten how brilliant it was, called Father of British R&B. And it really does make the case very strongly for how how important he was. Mm-hmm. You know, not only did he bring Bill Brunzi over, he brought Muddy Waters over here. And then he and his wife, Ossoli Patterson, went to Chicago. And Ossoli, who was white, ended up getting up on stage at Smitty's Corner in Chicago with Muddy's band. I mean, yeah, and this absolutely. must have been 19... I'm taking a guess here because John doesn't specify the date. But I mean, I'm guessing it's you know, 57, 58, something like that, maybe later. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah I mean, pioneer. without Chris Barber and, mm-hmm. well, indeed, without your, you know, without the Collier family, I mean, we may, you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows where all this would have gone? You know, yes. would there have been, would there have been yes. Alexis Corner and, 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 and the Rolling Stones, would they have done what they ended up doing without Chris Barber? Probably. Possibly not. Uh, possibly not, and possibly not. I mean, you know, much as uh, Lonnie has his detractors, I think without his sense of showbiz or his way of selling a song, 
then the skiffle thing would never have happened as big as it did, you know, mm. um, and affect every one of that generation. Yeah. Jimmy Page to completely, um, Mick and completely. Keith. Yeah, it is, it's, 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 a, it's a final kind of lineage to follow through. Mama, they treat your daughter me. I think we've come to the point where we need to hear about some of the pieces, Mark, that have been added over the last fortnight. Yes. Uh, Briefly. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay, just that. <laughs> um, right. Well, last week I chucked in talking about Max Jones, his interview with Ben Webster from Melody Maker 1965. Mm. Was 1965, Martin, was that the time Ben Webster slept on your couch? I might have been. <laughs> Breakfast with Ben. <laughs> and, 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 and he's talking about working at Ronnie Scott's. He says, every night I go to work, the trio plays better. That Stan Tracy's a bitch. He's full of surprises, <laughs> pleasant surprises, <laughs> which I love that. Great. Peter Super. Green, Beach Instrumental, 1966, interviewed by Kevin Swift. This is 66, so just joined the Blues Breakers. He says, I just people, people would stop comparing me with Eric. I just like them to accept me as Pete Green, not Clapton's replacement. We got a very nice—I uh, won't quote from—but a very nice review of Curtis Mayfield live in San Francisco in 1971 by Philip Elwood from the San Francisco Examiner. In 1990, John Morthland does a big piece on Rocky Erickson. Rocky Erickson. How do you pronounce it? Rocky. Barney's? Yeah, Rocky's Rocky. correct. I know it's weird. You'd think there's a, there should be a C there, but yeah. it's still Rocky. And it's just great. He says, in the house, he keeps a Roland damp at a steady hum, over which half dozen radios and TVs and a police scanner all play at once, providing <laughs> ambient noise. When Rocky wants to watch a video, usually horror movies, or listen to music, almost always on eight-track tape, he simply jacks the volume up on that particular machine. He is, as he puts it, just kick back and relaxing, having some fun up. <laughs> right, this week going in, very interesting, Derek Taylor, writing for Disc Music Echo, leaps to the defence of the recently busted Rolling Stones. This is in July 1967. And he does it in the most kind of elaborate sort of way. He says, we still fear so many other things, stupid things like parental disapproval, neighbour snubs, the jeers of the typing pool. We still have the horrors if anyone pierces the morning mask. We still take our faces out of the jar by the door. Quote he gets in there. Uh, it's time for everyone to speak for himself. He's just, it's, it's purple prose in defense of the Rolling Stones and their drug taking. What a surprise <laughs> that Derek would, uh, would take that tack. <laughs> the recently departed Chick career on working with Miles Davis to John Swenson, Zoo World 1974, he said, I found it fascinating, exciting, boring, angry, very serene, enthusiastic, a drag, frustrating. So that's <laughs> chikarins. I mean, yeah. It covers the whole gamut. Really. Yeah. Mixed, yeah. Um, uh, mixed review. Morris Day interviewed by Don Waller in LA Weekly in '84. Says my grandfather used to dress like I do: baggies, double-breasted suits, wide lapels, and everything. I love that him talking that about his his grandfather basically being a zoot suit wearing dude. Zoot suits, yeah. <laughs> and lastly, Amy Linden reviews a, a big R&B show at Madison Square Garden, headlined by the likes of L. Cool J and so on. And she says, the simulated sex never stopped. Guys were thrusting their pelvises at everything, from lighting cables to stage <laughs> monitors. Was this a hot light at, on Times Square? No, it's the Coca-Cola Summerfest show, Thursday at the Garden, headlined by LL Cool J and Naughty by Nature. You can just see it, can't you? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's great. So that's, 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 that's my love. 
Was that fast enough, Jasper? Just super, super compressed. Super compressed. It was like bluegrass speeding up old time <laughs> country music. I'll mention just three things very, very quickly, even quicker. Our old friend Candy, a crazy horse, who was a recent guest on the podcast, mm. a splendid piece from 2009, apropos of Jonathan Wilson's Gentle Spirit album. But it's basically just Candy riffing about sort of Laurel Canyon and everything that California means to her in a way that only she could write. It's fantastic. There's quite a fun interview with Dave Edmonds from 2015 by Carl Weiser of Song Facts. I learned just a few things about Dave and rock Paul and Nick Lowe from that that amused me. And lastly, a piece about Valerie June by Jeffrey Himes from 2017. And I really only mention this because it prompted me to listen to Valerie June, who I hadn't really listened to before. And she's really great. Really good. She's yeah, really yeah, she's good. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, so, so it's so nice to have it just a, I mean, I can't really describe what she does can you jasper it's such a weird melting me pot on the spot there. It's, yeah it's it is a really interesting it's quite appellation pot, right? but it's also yeah she's got a bit of high lonesome but also with some kind of undercurrent of bit of gospel yes bit of soul she's a she's a black southerner who's clearly got he's listened to the music we've been talking about in this episode and yet it feels so unique yeah, yeah. Have you heard her, Tony, at all? Valerie June? Yes, and I've seen her perform. Have you? I'm not really convinced. No, okay. everything you say is true and relevant, but it also means that, you know, she, there's a bit of this and a bit of this, and has she got some of the other, that the music seems to me to be a little unanchored. Okay. Mm. Unlike, say, Gillian Welsh and David Rawlings. Mm. So it's it's looking for a home for me still. Huh. But maybe that's part of the of the sort I'd of excitement a lot of, people, of it. That would be the yeah, charm of it. yeah, <laughs> yeah. She, she, I'm, I'm, she's I have sort of more. roaming through this landscape. Jasper, how about your good self? I'll also just mention a couple of things very quickly. The first of which, just just for the sake of lowering the tone, which I love to do. <laughs> Although actually, the article itself doesn't lower the tone. Just the quote I'm going to read. From it's just it. you. It's, 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 it's just a, you. Lowering it's just the tone. me. It's our first article about Sway. It's a record review of. He's a rapper, grime artist, mid noughties Pete Perfidi's reviews. This is my demo by Sway in the Times, and I list, went and listened to it, and it's actually a really good record, and he's very funny. Sway. That's what Pete Perfides agrees with. He's laugh out loud, funny too. Always the best way to make a serious point. Hence on Hype Boys, when drawing a line in the sand between his own interior world and that of the gangster, these rappers couldn't see me coming, even if they were vaginas with spectacles. <laughs> oh, God, which well, is the tone duly lowered. Which I just think is one of, the, one of the most hilarious lyrics I've ever heard. I think it's just, I don't know. That's a lyric, that is from, it? That's a lyric. Yeah, it's a lyric. It's a lyric. I just think. And when you hear That's it, it's so completely fun. convincing as well. It's fun. So that, that takes our rating out of PG into uh, X, triple X, X rated. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing, the other thing is a lengthy piece that's really nice by Alan Light in Relics, which is about Brian Burton, aka Danger Mouse, and his fascination with spaghetti western music. And he made this album, Rome, with Daniele Luppi, Jack White and Nora Jones, which is his kind of inspired by Spaghetti Western soundtracks. 
First came another quest for the original musicians and the vintage gear on which they'd recorded those landmark soundtracks. In perfect Italian style, some of the equipment rental would be paid for with bottles of wine. The musicians hadn't worked together for years. When they first got to the studio, there were laughter, tears, hugging. Within a few hours, of course, they were screaming and yelling, which I guess was back to their normal state, says Burton. But it's great because if you listen to the Niles Barkley record Crazy, it samples the soundtrack of a spaghetti western. And part of its genius is doing that in a totally incongruous context, which I think is fascinating. And I think the piece is well worth a look for that reason, because he clearly does love spaghetti westerns, which is a sort of funny thing for a very cutting edge producer of pop music over the last 20 years to, to, be, to be fascinated. And by. he got in a bona fide Italian to be part of this. Daniele Di Luca. Yes. I don't know who that is. You pronounce his name so beautifully. It was like <laughs> it was like listening to a sort of to a Puccini aria or something. Wow, uh, I'll take that. <laughs> He's a, a frequent collaborator, I think, of, of his, and is they he? both okay. had shared this shared this fascination for for the for the spaghetti western stuff. So that's my that's my couple of things. To Excellent, make. brilliant, lovely, lovely stuff. Well, I mean, gentlemen. I think we are out of time. It remains for me to thank Tony. Thank you so much for for joining us today. And please, listeners, do rush out and buy or download onto your Kindle, but you really need this in hard covers. Rural Rhythm, the story of old-time country music in 78 records, published by Oxford University Press. And you should also, of course, read all of Tony's other books, including the definitive Penguin Guide to Blues Recordings from 2006. So it's been a real privilege to have you here, Tony. Good luck with the book and everything else. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks Mark, very much. if you would just talk us out with the final Phil Everly clip. Yes, it's the lesser spotted Everly talking about his favourite his favorite Everly Brothers songs. <laughs> Right, so there's your suspense is an end, folks. So <laughs> goodbye to everyone. We'll be back in two weeks with Adele Berte of the Bloods and former Contortion talking about LaBelle and Peter Lofner, if that's how you pronounce his name. Um, we'll look forward to seeing you then. But meanwhile, it's good night from them. <gasps> and it's good night from me. <laughs> so, good night. Thanks very Bye. much, everyone. <laughs> What's your favourite song that you sang with your brother? I think, without a doubt, I can answer it very quickly. It's still Let It Be Me is still my favourite. Although, uh, all I have to do is dream is... is uh, and I hate to say Let It Be Me, but when Goodlow Bryant wrote almost all those hits for us. and uh, But it really runs between... Uh, I still think Let It Be Me, and then, you know, a very small point behind is all I have to do is dream. I bless the day I found you I want to stay around you and so I beg you let it be me That was Phil Everly in conversation with John Tobler in 1983 concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Tony Russell. Rural Rhythm is published by OUP and available now from all good bookshops. The hosts were Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 